Welcome to Hallowed, Exploring the Lives of the Saints, Episode 12, The Making of Merry England. I'm your host, Tom Thorne, and in this podcast, I'll be taking you on a journey through the lives, adventures, trials, and triumphs of the great heroes of the Christian faith. Today, to honor the recent passing of Her Majesty, Queen Elizabeth II, we'll be talking about the saints who led the conversion of England to Christianity over 1,400 years ago. The monk, missionary, and archbishop, St. Augustine of Canterbury. Right off the bat, I ought to give a disclaimer. This is not the St. Augustine you're probably thinking of. The more famous figure by that name is St. Augustine of Hippo, the North African bishop who wrote the Confessions, the City of God, and many other great works that have molded Western Christianity ever since. I love that St. Augustine. In fact, he's my confirmation saint, and he'll be sure to get his own episode. But the Augustine we're talking about today lived more than a century after his better-known namesake. Augustine of Canterbury was born sometime in the middle of the 6th century, likely in the city of Rome, to a noble family. But we don't really know. There's hardly any information about his early life, because Augustine lived in that turbulent age, right after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. This period is often called the Dark Ages. And while that term is no longer fashionable among historians, I do think it has some merit. Whatever good can be said about the beautiful artwork and cultural achievements of the early Middle Ages, the fact remains that for several hundred years after the fall of Rome, most of Europe was more violent, impoverished, and isolated than it had been under the old empire and nowhere was hit harder than the island of Britain. Britannia had been a Roman province for nearly four centuries by the time the empire gave up on it. The island that had once been a place of mystery and magic on the edge of the Roman imagination, the land where Julius Caesar had once led his short-lived expedition, where the emperor Claudius had conquered the Druids, where Queen Boudicca had led her fatal rebellion. That island, so far from Rome, had become pretty Roman after centuries of imperial rule. Many of Britain's oldest cities, like London, Cardiff, and York, flourished under the Roman occupation, and it's clear that many of the Celtic Britons, those are the ancestors of the modern Welsh, came to view themselves as Roman citizens. When the empire converted to Christianity in the 4th century, the new faith spread to the island as well. But whatever loyalty the Britons may have felt toward Rome was not reciprocated by Rome herself. 
in the year of our Lord 410, as the Western Empire was being torn apart by civil wars and barbarian invasions, the Emperor Honorius decided that holding on to a far-flung province was not worth the cost. In a fateful decree, he told the people of Britain to look to your own defenses. Then the Roman army withdrew from the island, never to return. Britain was abandoned to her fate, the fate of barbarian conquest. The tribes that invaded in the 5th century, sweeping in like vultures to feast on the corpse of Roman Britain, are known collectively as the Anglo-Saxons. They are, of course, the ancestors of the modern English. But when they arrived in the country that would one day become England, these fearsome warriors were still heathens. They worshipped the old gods of the Germanic pantheon, like Woden, Thor, and Frey, whose names are still remembered in the days of the English week, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. As they carved up the islands and drove the Christian Britons into the far western mountains, now called Wales, the pagan Anglo-Saxons blotted out Christianity across most of Britain. Where there had once been churches and even cathedrals, there were now only crumbling ruins. The Britons themselves turned inward, just trying to survive, and seemed to have made little effort to convert their pagan conquerors. This was the age of King Arthur, whether or not he existed. The age when Christian civilization was fighting for its very existence against heathen barbarity. It was against this background of destruction and desecration that the Holy Father in Rome, Pope St. Gregory the Great, decided to act in the year 596. Gregory was one of the most important popes of all time, and he'll likely get an episode of his own, but he comes into our story as the man who set out to restore Christianity to Britain. The classic story of how Gregory set his sights on the island comes to us from St. Bede the Venerable, the first English historian who wrote in the 730s. I'll be quoting a lot from Bede's ecclesiastical history of the English people throughout today's episode. It's the first, fullest, and most reliable account of the conversion of England, and I highly recommend it. In his story of Gregory's life before he became Pope, Bede tells the following tale. It is said that one day, soon after some merchants had arrived in Rome, a quantity of merchandise was exposed for sale in the marketplace. Crowds came to buy, and Gregory too amongst them. As well as other merchandise, he saw some boys put up for sale with fair complexions, handsome faces, and lovely hair. On seeing them, he asked, so it is said, from what region or land they had been brought. He was told that they came from the island of Britain, whose inhabitants were like that in appearance. He asked again 
whether those islanders were Christians or still entangled in the errors of heathenism. He was told that they were heathen. Then he gave a deep-drawn sigh and said, Alas, that the author of darkness should have men so bright of face in his grip, and that minds devoid of inward grace should bear so graceful an outward form. Again, he asked for the name of the race. He was told that they were called Angli. Good, he said. They have the face of angels, Angeli in Latin, and such men should be fellow heirs of the angels in heaven. Whether or not the story, complete with its bad pun about angels, is true, Gregory had good reason to work for the conversion of the English. In the 6th century, Christianity was under threats not only in Britain, but throughout Europe. Most of Germany, not to mention all of Scandinavia and Eastern Europe, had yet to be converted. And in an age where a single battle could decide the faith of a whole kingdom, it was crucial that Christianity go on the offensive. And so it was in 596 that Gregory sent the prior of a Benedictine monastery in Rome to lead a mission of about 40 monks to Britain. The prior was St. Augustine. Yet soon after Augustine and his monks had set out, they became, in Bede's words, paralyzed with fear at the dangers they were about to face. They were, after all, about to voyage to an unknown land to preach to a pagan race whose language they did not even understand. But they were encouraged to press on by a letter from Gregory, which Bede has preserved for us. Gregory, servant of the servants of God, to the servants of our Lord. My dearly beloved sons, it would have been better not to have undertaken a noble task than to turn back deliberately from what you have begun. So it is right that you should carry out with all diligence this good work which you have begun with the help of the Lord. Therefore do not let the toilsome journey nor the tongues of evil speakers deter you, but carry out the task you have begun under the guidance of God with all constancy and fervor. Be sure that however great your task may be, the glory of your eternal reward will be still greater. When Augustine your prior returns, now by our appointment your abbots, humbly obey him in all things, knowing that whatever you do under his direction will be in all respects profitable to your souls. May Almighty God protect you by his grace, and grant that I may see the fruit of your labors in our heavenly home. Though I cannot labor with you, yet because I should have been glad indeed to do so, I hope to share in the joy of your reward. May God keep you safe, my dearly beloved sons. The Pope's words were enough. Filled with new vigor, Augustine and his brothers set out once more upon their quest. 
after traveling through the war-torn lands of Frankish Gaul, the country we now call France. The missionaries crossed the English Channel and landed on the Isle of Thanet, off the southeasternmost corner of Britain. Now, the Anglo-Saxons were not a unified people in those days. England was divided into many petty kingdoms, which were often at war with one another. When Augustine landed on Thanets, he found himself in the Kingdom of Kent, today one of the shires of England. The King of Kent was a heathen named Ethelbert, but his wife, Bertha, was a Frankish princess and a Christian. So King Ethelbert was far more receptive to Christianity than most pagans would have been. That was probably why Augustine chose to start his work in Ethelbert's realm. Bede gives us a vivid account of the missionary's first meeting with the king. The king came to the island, and sitting in the open air, commanded Augustine and his comrades to come thither and talk with him. He took care that they should not meet in any building, for he held the traditional superstition that if they practiced any magic arts, they might deceive him and get the better of him as soon as he entered. But they came endowed with divine, not devilish power, and bearing as their standard a silver cross and the image of our Lord and Savior printed on a panel. They chanted litanies and uttered prayers to the Lord for their own eternal salvation and the salvation of those for whom and to whom they had come. At the king's command they sat down and preached the word of life to himself and all his yesiths, Anglo-Saxon nobles, their presence. Then he said to them, The words and the promises you bring are fair enough, but because they are new to us and doubtful, I cannot consent to accept them and forsake those beliefs which I and the whole English race have held so long. But as you have come on a long pilgrimage and are anxious, I perceive to share with us things which you believe to be true and good. We do not wish to do you harm. On the contrary, we will receive you hospitably and provide what is necessary for your supports. Nor do we forbid you to win all you can to your faith and religion by your preaching. So he gave them a dwelling in the city of Canterbury, which was the chief city of all his dominions, and, in accordance with his promise, he granted them provisions and did not refuse them freedom to preach. End quote. Keeping his promise, King Ethelbert granted the missionaries the use of Queen Bertha's private chapel, an old Roman church dedicated to St. Martin in the town of Canterbury. It can still be seen today. From St. Martin's church, Augustine and his brothers began to pray, preach, and baptize until they attracted a large following and eventually won the conversion of the king himself. King Ethelberts would be honored after death as Saint Ethelberts, and his queen as Saint Bertha. After a year of ministry in Kent, 
Augustine was officially consecrated as a bishop by St. Virgilius, the Bishop of Arles in southern Gaul, and founded Christ Church in Canterbury as his cathedral, the church still known as Canterbury Cathedral to this day. Augustine returned to England to continue his work, and was promoted to Archbishop by Pope Gregory in 601. Now invested with lordship over the whole English church as the first Archbishop of Canterbury, Augustine consecrated twelve bishops under his oversight to convert the rest of England beyond Kent. These men would travel far and wide, and would have many adventures of their own that do not come into our story. But in the end, their mission would be successful. Over the course of the 7th century, all the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms came to accept Christianity. Even when King Ethelbert's successor in Kent, his son Eadbald, briefly reverted to paganism, the roots set down by St. Augustine proved too deep to pull up. Eadbald himself went on to receive baptism, after being rebuked by Augustine's successor as Archbishop of Canterbury, St. Lawrence. Lawrence had been one of the original missionaries from Rome, and was one of the twelve bishops consecrated by Augustine. When King Eadbald rebelled against the faith of his parents, Lawrence considered fleeing the country. But, in a dream, the archbishop was scourged for his weakness by none other than St. Peter the Apostle, himself no stranger to lapses in faith. Arising in the morning, Lawrence found that the wounds he had received in his dream were real, and when he showed them to Eadbald, the king converted. The strategy adopted by Augustine and his brothers was, in general, one of patience and toleration whenever possible. Following the advice of Pope Gregory, the missionaries left many harmless pagan practices intact, even as they abolished idolatry, animal sacrifice, and various immoral customs. The Pope's instructions have survived in his letters to Augustine and the bishops of England, and they display the eminently reasonable character of the Holy Father. I'll read you one example, preserved by Bede, on the question of what to do with the sites that had been considered holy by the pagans. I have decided after long deliberation about the English people, namely, that the idol temples of that race should by no means be destroyed, but only the idols in them. Take holy water and sprinkle it in these shrines, build altars and place relics in them. For if the shrines are well built, it is essential that they should be changed from the worship of devils to the service of the true God. When this people see that their shrines are not destroyed, they will be able to banish error from their hearts, and be more ready to come to the places they are familiar with, but now recognizing and worshipping the true God. And because they are in the habit of slaughtering much cattle as sacrifices to devils, some solemnity ought to be given them in exchange for this. So, on the day of the dedication, or the festivals of the holy martyrs, whose relics are deposited there, let them make themselves huts from the branches of trees around the churches which have been converted out of shrines, 
and let them celebrate the solemnity with religious feasts. Do not let them sacrifice animals to the devil, but let them slaughter animals for their own food, to the praise of God, and let them give thanks to the giver of all things for his bountiful provision. Thus, while some outward rejoicings are preserved, they will be able more easily to share in inward rejoicings. End quotes. This is why so many churches in England are surrounded by groves of yew trees, which are often older than the churches themselves. The yew tree was held sacred by the pagans, and it was consecrated rather than destroyed by the missionaries who converted England. But there were others in Britain who resisted Augustine's mission. Not merely pagans, but some of his fellow Christians, too. As I mentioned earlier, the Christian Britons, who had been abandoned by the Roman Empire, had done very little to convert the pagan Anglo-Saxons over the following centuries. They had been holed up in their Welsh mountain bastions, doing all they could to survive the heathen onslaught. So, when St. Augustine and his fellow Roman missionaries showed up in 597, it seems that some of the Celtic Christians of Britain actually resented their arrival. They were probably thinking, Long time no see, and some good you've done us. They might have found it hard to respect the Bishop of Rome when the Emperor of Rome had so callously thrown them to the wolves. Whatever the reason, the early meetings between Augustine and the Britons were not exactly cordial. Being endowed with authority from the Pope, Augustine made several attempts to bring the Celtic Church back into line with Roman practices, like the correct dating of Easter and the proper form of monastic tonsure. These may sound like petty differences to us, and indeed today the Catholic Church is very accepting of diversity in these sorts of customs. But in the time of Augustine, there was more at stake. There was the question of the Pope's leadership over a branch of the Christian family that had, by all accounts, gone astray. Even the Celtic churchman, St. Gildas, had blamed the fall of Britain on the laxity of the British Christians. Hardly anyone felt the Britons were thriving on their own. If the Celtic church simply ignored the Pope's orders and went its own way, then its membership in the worldwide Catholic Church was open to question. Bear in mind that this was long before the schism between Western Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. At this time, even the patriarchs and emperors of Constantinople, proud as they were of their lofty Byzantine culture, still deferred to the Pope on matters of faith and morals. It was only in isolated pockets like Britain that anyone doubted the Pope's leadership. And so we can see why Augustine insisted on Romanizing the Celtic Church. In the summer of 603, Augustine traveled far to the west of Kent, into the western borderlands between England and Wales, to meet with representatives of the Celtic Church. The British bishops believed that Augustine was an arrogant man 
trying to impose foreign customs on their native church. So they decided in advance that if he did not rise to greet them, they would judge him too proud to be worth their time. It was rather an odd test, to say the least. But when they arrived at the meeting place, they found Augustine sitting in the shade of an oak tree, and he did not stand up from his seat. I should mention that he was probably an old man by this point. So the British bishops turned around and went back to Wales, not even bothering to hear what the missionary had to say. It would be another sixty years before the Celtic Church accepted the Roman customs, but they would eventually accept the rule of Rome at the Synod of Whitby in 664, an occasion deemed so important by Bede that he actually makes it the central chapter of his history. The Celts had strayed, but in the end, they came home by choice. The tree where St. Augustine met, or rather didn't meet, those bishops, has passed into folklore. No one agrees on exactly where it was. There are five claims, all in the far west of England. But the strongest contenders are the villages of Rock and Hartleby in Worcestershire. The former came to be called Hallach, or Holy Oak, by the Anglo-Saxons though, sadly, the oak itself was destroyed in a fire in 1757, while the latter, in Hartleby, lives on through a sapling thought to have been taken from the original tree. Apparently, the land around that tree is held on the condition that the oak never be harmed. It may or may not be St. Augustine's oak, but I think it's charming that it's been so well preserved. St. Augustine of Canterbury died of natural causes in late May 604, and was buried in a church he'd founded, the Abbey of Saints Peter and Paul in Canterbury, now known as St. Augustine's. Unfortunately, this abbey was destroyed in the Reformation, despite being one of the most prominent monasteries in medieval Europe but you can still visit the ruins in Canterbury. You can also go on pilgrimage to Ramsgate on the Isle of Thanet, where Augustine and his brothers are believed to have landed in 597. There, the Victorian Catholic architect A.N.W. Pugin, who designed some of the most beautiful churches of the 19th century, built a shrine for Augustine, his patron saint. Today the shrine houses a relic, a bone from the saint's body, to which you can pay your respects. St. Augustine of Canterbury is commemorated on the 26th of May in Eastern Orthodoxy, and the following day in the Catholic Church. He is, of course, one of the patron saints of England. His story teaches us a great deal about perseverance. He was a very human saint, who sometimes showed weakness and even cowardice, but he was determined in the end to see his work done. Thanks to his efforts and those of his followers, England was one for the Christian faith, becoming the Merry England of story and song for centuries after.
Though the faith of the English would be tested in the Viking Wars of the 9th and 10th centuries, it would emerge stronger than ever. Only since the Reformation, and more acutely, since the First World War, has England strayed first from her Catholic and now from her Christian roots. But, through the prayers of St. Augustine, we can be confident that she will return when God sees fit. May St. Augustine of Canterbury, Apostle to the English, come to our aid now and always for the greater glory of our Lord, Jesus Christ. God save England, and God save the King.